0: Hello, the internet, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. This is episode 89, and I know I should be planning something special for the 100th episode, which is coming, I don't know, sometime maybe next academic year after the summer or something like that, but I don't have anything special planned, so <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Okay, so we're going to be talking about two topics today that are interlinked. The first one has to do with the vast majority of people who ever lived in pre-modern societies. These are, especially in the Mediterranean world, primarily agricultural populations who are mostly non-urban, though you can live in a city and work the land. Uh, cities were strategically positioned to, usually, to have a very you know fertile hinterland. But most people in the ancient and medieval worlds were what we generally call, sort of gritting our teeth, peasants. And there has been a lot of discussion about this category and what that concept means. It's obviously not a favorable category to be in, right? We don't associate good things normally with peasants. You know, except when capitalism is trying to package something sort of bourgeois bohemian for us under the guise of peasant authenticity. But when historians and social historians in particular talk about peasants, this is not a flattering term. And it has all kinds of problems, such as the idea that it's a kind of unchanging category., uh, you know, peasant life doesn't change. It remains fundamentally the same throughout centuries and millennia. Um also, A lot of its associations come from the Western medieval world, uh, you know, this kind of imagined world of feudalism and serfs and all of that. And those connotations are exported to other fields of study and other societies. For a critical look at a lot of this, I will refer you to my guest from Episode 77. This is Kim Bose. We talked a little bit about this in that episode, but um, she also has a more recent project called the Roman Peasant Project, which focuses on a lot of this, combines archaeology with conceptual analysis. Okay, so I have encountered the problematic use of peasants in a lot of Byzantine scholarship. Um, And one of the things that has always bothered me is this idea that peasants are two things, isolated and generally indifferent to what was going on politically. Um, And categorically, I can tell you that the isolated description is false, just false on a factual level. Uh, There were no isolated people in, especially in the East Roman world, uh, nor were they indifferent or ignorant about (laughs) who the emperor was and what the tax cycle was and what indiction they were in and things like this. These were things that were vital to their economic survival and they knew those things very, very, very well. Um, And I would argue that they were far more in touch with and attuned to very, you know, uh, even small changes in the political scene. Uh, because it had affected them locally um, on a very deep level. And the other question is whether they were apathetic. This comes up in scholarship very, very much um, as when some foreign group conquers a province of the Roman Empire and the modern historian will say, but for most people life went on and, you know, if they even noticed that they were paying taxes to some other overlord or something like this. I, I don't believe that any of that is true either. Um, But but it is a view of the peasant that gets recycled, um, you know, from generation to generation of scholarship. So my guest today has produced some of the most interesting research regarding peasants, in quotation marks always, in the late Byzantine world, specifically in the 14th century, which was not the happiest century. Um, And I find her work very exciting. And we had a marvelous conversation about peasants at the recent uh, joint AIA SCS um, meeting in New Orleans um, a couple months ago (laughs) where we were sitting in a corner by the elevators uh, watching the parade of Miss Universe contestants come down and speak to various influencers then take the elevator up or down wherever (laughs) anyway and I really wish we had recorded our conversation there um no not about the Miss Universe contestants about peasants Um, Though if you wanted to bet that I did get a selfie (laughs) with one of them, you you, that would be a safe bet. Anyway, but I didn't record that conversation. We subsequently had a more structured conversation that I recorded uh, for you. Um, And so we're going to be talking about uh, peasants, uh, you know, agricultural rural communities on late Byzantine islands who were much more active in shaping the circumstances of their own lives than you would imagine, right? So very, very different view from the traditional view of, of you know, politics as for the elites um, that has prevailed in Byzantine scholarship, uh, in fact almost unanimously until very recently. So my guest is Fotini Kondili, uh, she's a professor at the University of Virginia, And in addition to being a first-rate scholar, she also radiates an enthusiasm, infectious enthusiasm about her uh, her research and about the people she studies. Um, Not just the people in the 14th century, uh, but also the people whom she encountered in her research on um, these uh, islands in the 14th century. Because, and this brings me to the second topic of our conversation, which is survey archaeology, because survey archaeology is one of the means by which she accesses the lives of rural communities in the later Byzantine period. Uh, In addition to working with um, textual sources, because we have some documentary evidence from this period, you know, listing taxable assets and properties and such. Uh, and also um, more sort of fixed sort of kind of monumental archaeological sites that fortifications and things like that, all of which are in her book, uh, which is called Rural Communities in Late Byzantium, Resilience and Vulnerability in the Northern Aegean. It just came out and she synthesizes all of these sources to try to get at a more comprehensive and a more sympathetic view of these communities that have often been sidelined in traditional scholarship. for reasons that are understandable. I mean, until someone actually produces this kind of work, um, it's very difficult to synthesize them into accounts of, you know, politics taking place far away. But her fascinating experiences in survey archaeology, uh, that is, you know, walking the terrain and landscape of these islands and looking for her communities, uh, they kind of resonated with some experiences I had a long time ago. So we talk about you know, the kinds of people that you encounter when you're walking around in, in the fields um, of Greek islands in the summer. Anyway, it's great stuff. Uh, Fotini is really fun to have conversations with. And so let's get right to our discussion. And also thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting uh, these episodes. Also, one more quick note. Um, I was interviewed um, on the podcast uh, Told in Stone, um, which is hosted by Garrett Ryan. Uh, on the topic of the Byzantines and the classical past, though our conversation ranged widely over a whole range of topics. Uh, that was a couple months ago, but I forgot to mention it, so I'm mentioning it now in case you want to go hear more of me for some reason. Okay, let's get to it. Otini, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about my my book and my research.
0: It was good to see you um, last uh, weekend, right, at the Society of Classical Studies. We actually had a very good conversation there, uh, which, in retrospect, maybe I should have recorded it, would have been, <laughs> in, um, I mean, the one that we had about your research, not yeah. the one about the committee meeting that you dragged me to, where you're going to force me to read a bunch of files. It's
1: Good for you.
0: Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. Okay, um, so... Uh, your book is called Rural Communities in Late Byzantium. Uh, rural communities are difficult to access. One of the means by which you do that is through survey archaeology. Uh, so right. let's talk a little bit about that, because most of our audience, when they hear archaeology, will think excavations, and you've taken part in excavations too. But can you tell us what survey archaeology is, what its goals are, what its methods are, how they differ from you know more conventional excavations?
1: Right. So... Survey is by now a very well-established way of studying the past, and it helps us it helps us see and understand better the landscape as well as the human activity uh, in it. So uh, usually it's more um thinking about the diachronic landscape and the diachronic history of the human past. Uh, it allows us to see the connections between uh, different types of sites, whether they are settlements, whether they are. Um, dealing with economic activities. Um, and they're also telling us something about the relationship between human and non-human actors, something that is a little bit more difficult to do with uh, excavation. Uh, the other thing that's wonderful about it is, is that it gives you a wider overview of a region. So you're not just focused on one side, but rather the relationship between different sides. And of course it's non-invasive, right? You're not excavating anything it's pedestrian survey it means you're looking at and studying things that are available to you on the ground surface
0: right so tell us where you carried out the survey um the surveys on which the book is based and a little bit more maybe about the like how this worked in practice like so what are you actually doing on a day-to-day basis when you're conducting sur- when you're gathering the data for your survey because then you have to process the data but how do you gather the data what are you looking for
1: Okay, so great. So I wanted to do, um, I wanted to focus my research on areas that we know less about. So they have been, they're understudied and not very well understood what their role is within the broader Mediterranean, um, medieval Mediterranean history. So I focused on the two islands in the Northern Aegean, Limnos and Thassos. Uh, I had never been to the islands before, I knew nothing about them. Uh, but the reason I selected them both was that on the one hand I was pretty certain that they had a lot of interesting archaeological material that we still didn't know much about it, they weren't published and so on, but on the other hand there was this richness of archival material that's coming out of the Mount Athos archives because monasteries from Mount Athos have had extensive properties on both Mm. islands, so I thought that would be very interesting also methodologically to combine archeological data with textual sources and kind of try to tell a story of these rural communities, which as you said before, are a little bit harder to access. What that looked like when I was there, apart from getting lost a lot, uh, was that every day I had a series of sites and areas and regions that they wanted to visit and kind of see what's on the ground. Usually that involves Mm, architectural remains or ruins of certain structures that might be Byzantine. Um, And then you have all these uh, surface uh, scatters, especially of pottery, sometimes um, stone or marble. If you're lucky, maybe you'll see a coin, but usually most of it is pottery. um, That signals there that something happened there Uh, in the Byzantine period, right? Some kind of activity, some kind of occupation. Um, So this is how that looked. And, you know, I had already used the archives themselves and the the work that scholars had done before me in identifying a couple of sites. Uh, So I started from known locations and then I moved into really just walking every day. This was a time I also didn't know how to drive. So that meant serious walking, you know, I wake up like 5am, just really walk and get lost in the landscape. And, you know, that also means that I really relied on local knowledge and expertise, mostly people finding me being lost in people's schools, <laughs> and, you know, showing me sites that they thought there might be medieval or anyways had some archaeological material worth studying um so this is how the daily life looked you know really being lost really relying on the kindness of local uh, communities and trying to find sites um sometimes remarkable you know completely built up environments and sometimes all of this is already gone and all you see is like three pieces of pottery hopefully you can uh, date at least one or two and then you're like hey the byzantines were here so mm-hmm. you st- this is to where you you start, but you're also recording any structures um, that are still surviving. And the other thing that's very important is um, gathering information about the geographical locations, so such as GPS points and things like that. Uh, so you can then recreate um, site maps and site dist- distributions, which is what survey landscape uh, survey archaeology is all about, right? Finding these connections between sites.
0: Yes, uh, also you're doing research on a Greek island.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, well, I never, you know, I spent four years in those two islands. I never went for a swim, I never had time. So it, was, it looked great, but I didn't personally have the experience of swimming there.
0: Right, right. I, I know what you mean. Um, I, I did some very, very peripherally, some sort of similar kind of work on Lesbos when I was there. Long story. Anyway, I was sort of tracking down early Christian sites. Basically, early Christian churches, which you can identify from the from the architectural elements that are rarely destroyed, they're usually preserved. And and, and it's, it's it's pretty grueling, especially if you don't take enough water <laughs> with you on some days. Anyway,
1: well, the the other challenge about this is, you know, uh, I remember being on that first uh, plane arriving. Uh, on Limnos thinking, you know, I've got this, I've done all my homework, my research, I can do this. And then I remember encountering the first possible site and looking at this wall and thinking, right, is that, isn't it? Is it Roman? Is it early modern? I mean, you know, the the traditional, some of the traditional techniques of building are the same for hundreds of years. So you think you've got this and you're trained and, you know, you're ready for it. And then you encounter the reality of the archaeology and you're like, uh, is Mm. this a site?
0: Is so you know this,
1: yes. so these are all I, I say this for people in the audience who you know might be doing the research right now and encountering the same um questions it's not you guys it's the landscape it's hard it's hard to understand what's man made what's natural you know you're you're seeing things on a stone and you're thinking okay is this quarrying activities is it just naturally formed so you know these are questions that we struggle and we you know, that's why it's so important to spend a lot of time there. So more and more, you start understanding and differentiating between what you're looking for and what else is out there.
0: Uh, Yes, I remember a team, this was near Corinth. (laughs) They were, like, for about an hour, they were just staring at these three rocks and (laughs) they were trying to decide, but is it a wall?
1: It's a valid question. It's totally a valid question.
0: Um, Okay, so a lot of what you're finding when you do this is pottery fragments. Um, And by pottery. Yeah. Why don't you tell us the range of uh, where all of these bits come from and what kinds of conclusions can you draw from it?
1: Okay, Uh, so, you know, the, the pottery is your saving grace in survey archaeology, because on the one hand, it signals for you sites of activity. But then you can also tell a lot about the kind of activity you're having. One of the most interesting things that came out uh, of the work I did on the two islands was that I saw so much of, you know, beautifully, beautifully decorated glazed uh, pottery that usually we do not associate, right, with what rural communities mm-hmm. uh, want or desire or own. So we think more about, you know, cooking pots and amphorae and um, things that allow you to store Uh, liquids such as water and oil and wine, but then you see this beautiful pottery in very inland sites within the islands, and that triggers different questions about these people's identities, how they saw themselves, how they were as consumers. It's also interesting that we know for sure that on Limnos at least uh, we're pretty certain that between the 13th and 15th century, the island itself was producing this kind of pottery, so glazed um incised graffito and they were participating in a wider trade network of these commodities in um in the Aegean and the Balkans so it's interesting to see these sites both as producers of these goods but also of consumers uh, it changes for me at least it changes the way i was thinking about rural communities that they are interested in owning them and they can afford them So these two were very important um, conclusions for the sites. And also this idea between uh, sites on the coast that get more activity through trade uh, and inland sites. So I was expecting really to see bigger differences than I actually saw. Uh, So that tells something about how the island was organized, where the settlements were, uh, and how people and commodities moved throughout the islands.
0: Right. And in addition to vessels, or my understanding is that there's also the category of, of tiles for like a, a roof. Uh, so, right. And, and so when a house collapses or burns, those fall down to the ground. But they don't burn the way the wood, wood, wood does. So it's often all that's left from a roof. Right. So th- does that account for a significant portion of um, like pottery, I mean, you know, baked yes. elements?
1: But you know, it's they are harder to date, right? And so many of them get reused uh, in different in later periods, right?
0: right. Um,
1: I mean, why why on earth are you going to waste tiles in a site and not pick them up and reuse them? Uh, whether you are you know flattening out your courtyard space, um, right. why not use it, right? So you know, and and the other thing which is crazy about uh, the pottery that I encounter, I always have to. Think about also this, how uh, pottery has many afterlives and how it can be used even for manure. So, you know, people are throwing pottery in their fields. So, you know, this is something that we talk a lot about Mm. in survey archeology. span Like what do do these assemblages mean when we encounter them and how they come to arrive in that place where we find them? Are they really uh, signaling a site of use, or are we seeing something about their afterlife?
0: Right. So, as you're going through the um, the survey field walking, you're you're taking notes. Um, that this is you're collecting the data now. Whether you're doing so on a notebook or a laptop or or a bunch of napkins, I don't know whatever. But, <laughs> but this data isn't published afterwards right like so your monograph doesn't have like long lists of tables of what what you found at each place right so and i asked this what's that
1: they exist in the appendix so all the sites with all their gps uh, locations and all the categories of finds are at the at the end of the book
0: right so this is material that you saw and recorded and it results in the data that you sort of compress into the appendices, right? But it's not like I have access. Okay, so why am I saying this? And maybe this is irrelevant. but um, And it's because I was on another committee. See, committees just twist. <laughs> they, they twist the way you think, right? So for most of the work that I do, there's no actual data that I have that others don't have. Like I were just mostly texts and anybody can go see those texts and I cite the text and that that's the data. There's no, I don't have any information that any, that isn't generally available. Right. That's what I mean. And, and I was, the committee was one about like data integrity and all of that. And, and I was trying to convince them that in some fields of the humanities, there is no data anyway.
1: Right, but even your thoughts and ideas, in a way, they become data. And, uh, you know, for me, like, I'm I'm, I'm glad that you're asking this because this is something that's very much on my mind. So the, the most important data is at the back of the book as a first way of sharing. Mm-hmm. But uh, now that the book is out, I'm thinking about how to enhance that accessibility to the data and also allow other people to use them. So one of the things I'm thinking moving forward is... Um, you know, creating, uh, allowing the, my data to be more accessible publicly through open access data. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also, I'm always a huge fan of having my students work with me in projects. So I think I'm going to like turn this into a student-driven project where they uh, publish the data in, in different forms, have, um, allow more access and participation from a wider uh, audience to it, but yeah, for for mm-hmm. our this is I feel the holy grail. If we don't fully publish and share our data, our job is not done. And I feel yeah. very about
0: that. I remember a long time ago, twenty years maybe more, uh, Tim Gregory, who was doing survey in the Corinthia, right? And, and I remember him showing me how he was experimenting with like at the time, you know, a CD-ROM. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he would include it with the publication, and it would have in it all these. You know, graphs and spreadsheets and images and everything of the data that they had collected. And
1: uh, yeah, well, now we use digital platforms and and GIS uh, applications, Uh, but that allows a lot of people to take the data. I mean, I did a lot of spatial analysis uh, for the book about how these sites are connected to each other, what you can see when you're standing in one site, and what's the visibility. Mm, yeah, Yeah, yeah. And that became an important, um, Part of my argument about fortification networks and how they work. But then other people can ask the same data different questions. Uh, and that's that is the motivation behind sharing the data, allowing people to reuse them in different ways and allow them to tell different stories from the ones I actually, you know, described right.
0: in the book. Right, right. So it's fascinating what you said in chapter five about your relationship to the local informants. And obviously you Surely you've had a lot of interesting encounters, um, especially on Greek islands. I know I did too. Um, some some pretty really weird and crazy stuff. Um, but there you talked about what a difference it made to your thinking to have a sort of shared bodily experience of the landscape as the locals as you're doing your research. Can you talk a little bit more about that topic? What What was it about your perception of the landscape that that changed um, in the course of of those interactions?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, these these are people who are living their lives in this, uh, you know, their daily life involves uh, being in parts of the island that they know very well. But it's interesting to me, what was interesting was the way they would describe both sides, but also directions, because, of course, all our encounters were were. Where is that? How can I get to that? Have you seen, do you have any fields that have glazed colored pottery? I mean, this is how the interaction Mm. was. It was very interesting to hear um, these local informants talk about the landscape itself and how they were directing themselves and navigating in a very different way than I did, or I would be able to explain to somebody else. So, you know, there were no coordinates, go North, turn right, turn left, but rather Go down. There's going to be a fig tree. <laughs> Take a ride. Then you're going to hear uh, the water from this little stream. And when you're you're when it's loud enough, you're there. So it was more. This is what I I think about bodily experience. That you know, their entire body and senses participated in understanding and knowing that landscape. And of course, that's not the other part about this. It's not that it's an individual's experience. Of course it also has to do with how they've been taught to navigate la- that landscape so it's also a collective way of knowing a collective way of moving and a collective way of being in the world that was fascinating to me um and it was very different from you know me and my map and mm-hmm. my gps coordinates and how i was trying to access a terrain that was unknown to me um another thing about these encounters was uh, my my moment of Fame and how I got—I think people, local people—to like me was, we—I was with some local people. We were walking towards a site that might have been of interest, um, and I see this rock formation. So I tell them, "Oh, I think I know what that is," and I'm hoping that this is right. I said, "Is this this rock formation that is called the Rider?" They said, "How do you know that?" So at that point, I took out my Laptop And I showed them this um, monastic archive that describes this with the same name. And I said, look, this is a Byzantine oh, description. wow. And, you know, they were so impressed. But, you know, this was happening to me all the time because people, I would ask people's names and they would introduce themselves to me. And their names were names that I had in a 14th century um, contract between a monastery. The story and the local family of the village. So I would tell them, oh, I know your surname, you know. Uh, so these were things that they were very interested in, in, in knowing more about um, the history of their island from a very different perspective. And they were very fascinated with the descriptions in the monastic archives about, you know, their landscape and their villages and so on. And, and I, I will, I will to... note
0: that you begin the book with... Uh... <laughs> Um, one of these fellows from the monastic archives who has your name.
1: I know this was a <laughs> this was a coincidence, and I'm glad that you know I decided to open up the book with that. I think it's funny. I think um, you know for a long time I had read that story early on when I was doing this research, and it was sitting in a footnote somewhere in the book. And then you know after having all this experience with these uh, local communities and seeing how fascinated they were with. References of their their names in the 14th century archives. I decided to put that in front, also because it's such an incredible story that these two uh, siblings are taking one taking on one of the most powerful monasteries uh, and trying to take them to court and trying to involve the entire island to participate in that debate whether an icon belongs to the monastery or it belongs to these two siblings um, and I thought you know that story captured a lot of what I was trying to say both about how local communities work but also thinking about the agency of rural communities who they're dealing with how they're trying to you know get some uh, power have a say in what's going on so you know that was a good story and I'm not really I, I don't have any relatives from Limna, so that was Completely random, but I thought it made a good story.
0: It was a nice touch, yes. Um, And you're quite right about the place names. I was very impressed by this uh, on Lesbos because we have these um, tax, um, these property declarations from the 4th century uh, from the island. And they list properties by name. And about half those names survive today as sort of regional uh you know a, pl- a plot of land here a plot of land there a gardener whatever and it's not because anybody had these inscriptions and it's through this process of archaizing reconstruction you know how that works sometimes in greece where they rename things based on i don't know it was it's, it's astonishing level of survival um uh yeah so tell us about these archives and these people that you found in there how did they understand their properties um you know based on how they're described in official documents. So you know, rather because they're not using GPS coordinates. What are they using?
1: Right. So one of one of the arguments I'm making in thing, in in the book is about different systems of knowledge and how they're all recorded and included in those archives. And you know, it's a very similar story with what I said uh, before about my encounters with modern limnians. You know they have a very different way of knowing. And I came with a very different experience and training of knowing, and both of them together, you know create an enriched um understanding of the landscape and it's the same thing in the archives that are you know on the one hand, these are transactions, right? They are describing their legal documents that they're describing properties and their boundaries and um economic value. But on the other hand, the description of these landscapes are so rich in terms of the language the place names and the effort that's that's being um you know invested in describing with accuracy but then again these things mean nothing if you're not a local because if you're not a local and you don't possess that local knowledge you are not able to go and find these areas um and you know i don't know if you know or people know that recently that also played out in Greece again where now everybody's supposed to be creating a new archive a digital archive of their lands and ownerships in order to do that Uh, local villages and settlements have to come back together to agree that yes this olive tree is in your part of the field and not in mine so you know I saw this being played out last year in Greece again I was like Oh, it's exactly the same as it is in the archives. So going back to the archives, um, the monastic archives, I was more fascinated with a couple of things that we have local knowledge and we also have imperial officials coming together, really trying to measure, really trying to make sense of the landscape itself. I was fascinated with things such as that many fields have names. Hmm. I mean, I I guess I hadn't thought about this before, but it's fascinating to see that people are naming their fields and they're not only their names. So Anthony's field, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, they have the names of saints. They have the names of uh, related to place names or descriptive, if it's hilly, if it's flat. So it's very, it was very interesting to me to to think about the choices, how they are named, why they're named that way. And the fact that that, Memory, you know that, that the landscape in that way—it's it's an archive. It's an archive of personal histories, of um, family histories, right? Uh, so that that was very fascinating. These are tiny details, but I think this is where, for me, I really started uh, discovering the people uh, and how they lived in that period, how they thought about themselves and uh, their communities So you know, again, these are tiny details in an archive that. It's really about transaction and economic transaction and ownership, but if you go into a deeper reading, this is where these local communities come alive.
0: Yeah, let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, can you tell us why you're interested in rural communities um, in in general? Um, sure. Also, why in late Byzantium?
1: <laughs> okay. Well, the I will I will preface preface what I say with something that's already. Um, In the first pages of the book, in the preface, I explained that, you know, I spent my entire childhood living uh, in a village like this. My grandparents would take me in a village in the Peloponnese. And this was my first uh, lessons in rural life. Uh, You know, I mostly followed women around as a little kid, um, but I also participated in the life of the village. So almond harvesting, wine making, olive harvesting. And, you know, these were early memories of my life. But, you know, it was very clear to me that there were very specific rules about behavior. Uh, I also got to see the village coming together and what that meant in times of celebration or in times of crisis. Also what it meant to gossip, to check on your neighbors um, and things like that. Um, So, you know, I already had these memories. And when later in life I came to Byzantine studies, uh, on the one hand, you know, I was very happy that especially historians were thinking about village life and rural communities, but I was not very satisfied um, by the role we were assigning these rural communities, which basically meant no and no agency. These guys were just like harvesting the land and paying taxes and just waiting it out. Um, and that's definitely not the case. So, you know, I was interested in them because they are a large amount of the population. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they are the ones who make what whatever we think Byzantium is, it's because of them. Um, and the fact that we don't talk about them like that, that we don't uh, give them a voice, that we assume they don't really matter in the big events of, of the medieval period, for me was shocking. Uh, especially when we actually do have a lot of information for them, we have just muted their voice. And part of what I was uh, trying to do with the book is not only give them a voice, but also make an argument to reinstate them back in the historical narrative and show with you know, very specific examples how they do participate in the life of their island, but also how they can even force the hand of the emperor to do certain things for them. So, you know, having these examples of how they deal with really problematic situation, really challenging uh, points uh, in terms of their economic life, the political circumstances, demography, and how quick, I mean, what is fascinating about them is how quickly they change their way of life, the way they organize their economic um, activities, the way they socialize with each other to cope and adapt and try to create something new in their lives when they encounter these moments of crisis so this is another way that i i give them back their power in a way and of course late byzantium is perfect for this because you know it is a time where a lot of these bad moments happen but for me you know i was always very interested in the late byzantine period because this you know as you know better than me uh, has so often been labeled as the bad period, right? <laughs> we know it's going to all end. So obviously, if it all ended uh, politically, it must have been a terrible time to live in. And I very much disagree with that. I think this is one of the most interesting periods in Byzantium because so much is changing that the Byzantines themselves keep reinventing themselves, keep rethinking, okay, now that we don't have as much land as we had before, how are we what we are? Um, then you have things like black death, that you know, when when black death occurs uh, and we see these experiences in the Byzantine world and Limnos and Thassos, it is incredible to see again how these people are coping with these things uh, in the population, And how this crisis also creates opportunities for some of them. This is where some of these uh, people manage to have a lot of land or change their economic activities. So, you know, I thought, you know, if I put that story of rural communities on the late Byzantine period, it will allow me to see how they cope with different moments of crisis, but it will also allow me to say something new about the late Byzantine period. I'm very concerned with this business of. Uh, separating our past in good and bad periods and the the criteria that we use uh, to give them an A plus or a B minus, <laughs> this is not how we, I mean, we're studying the human condition, right? Um, and having these ideas of bad and good periods, it's a slippery slope because it allows us to say that not only some periods, but some groups are better than others. Or worth studying more and you know I so you know I think the late Byzantine period which is my personal favorite allows me to a little bit go back and revisit these theories of good and bad periods
0: at least. Sure I mean you're exactly right some some periods do get a better grade <laughs> Um, and you know, you can see it in all of the, the the nouns and adjectives that we use for them, you know, be it, be it glory or rise or whatever, That's right? right? Decline. Twilight. Yeah. Twilight, yes. <laughs> the decline. Um yeah, but in this particular period, there's another factor I think we need to acknowledge, which is that it's just vastly more complex than say the 10th or the 11th centuries. Right? Absolutely. Right. I mean, the 14th century, there's so much going it's it's difficult to keep all of the balls in the air. And you, you not only have the Black Death, like you mentioned, but uh, there's um, rampant sort of piracy and slave trading going on in the Aegean, right? On From both Latins and Turks, the geopolitical boundaries are changing all the time. Um, and so it, it is just a much more complicated period. Yeah. Can, you Can you tell us a little bit, oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I just want to say that then that makes you, uh, have new protagonists who are, you know, um, the new kids in the block. And, you know, I mentioned two of them in the book who are, again, my favorite heroes of the time is these two brothers, probably, Alexios and Ioannis, who show up randomly in the Aegean with a tiny fleet. Uh, they start right. winning battles. We don't even know why they're fighting these battles or what they're fighting for uh, right. until that comes under the radar of the Byzantine emperor who decides to uh, not fight back, but kind of fold them within yeah, court. Them. But these guys are amazing because they start from pirates, fle- <laughs> someone with a small fleet. Then yeah. they become lords of Thasos. Um, they, they 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 intermarry in the Byzantine family. Then they they can see that things are. Or might not be going uh, very well for them in the future. So in their effort to protect their assets and the people that are, um, you know, within their uh, control in Macedonia, they decide to become... Uh, citizens in Venice and we have the archival proof of their citizenship so now they're double citizens and then when that also seems that it's not enough and that says also something about you know how complex that period is they make the ultimate power move which is to found their own monastery in Mount Athos so this is a Pantocrator monastery and through that they with all their property Uh, including like fortifications and castles and the fleet they have in the monastery itself. So for me, their story is a story of like the underdog fighting, Hmm. trying to figure out what the best strategy is in a complex period, not giving up, keep trying different things, see what's going to work. I mean, these guys are like dreamers uh, and they make it, I mean, for 50 years, their plan works. And then one of them dies, so it's game over. Uh, but the, I mean, they're fascinating. But you need to have these challenging and complex periods to have that kind of personality showing up, and you know, trying to survive and make sense of that complexity. So they're they're my favorite for sure.
0: Absolutely, what I saw happening in this period, um, this is this is the fourteenth century, is that as the Um, Roman state loses its armies it also loses its military aristocracy and what happens is which survives until about 1320 1340 at the outer edges and then what happens is that you have the court and the royal family interacting much more directly with people from local communities merchants and and the people you talk about um and anyway they it you get some very interesting interactions that way and you're entirely right about reinventing themselves and trying to find these very interesting ways to get by in the um, in this world uh, like uh, you, you might know my favorite con man in all of history Pablo uh, who, Stagaris who's from this period who just went around the whole eastern Mediterranean pretending to be you know, the bishop of that and the patriarch of that. And <laughs> no, he's pretty, He actually got the pope to appoint him like the bishop of Jerusalem. It's like, and he's just a con man selling icons. Uh, at some finally, he was arrested and he, he gave his whole confession to the, the patriarch at, in Constantinople. And it's just an incredible story. Um, today, he'd be elected to Congress, right, with some of these guys. <laughs> Um, all right. So, yeah. So one of the things that you mentioned were, were fortifications and walls and you devote a whole chapter to them, which I, I find fascinating reasons we can maybe talk about later, but I have my own interest in this, but, um, so what different kinds of fortifications existed and how were they used? What were they were for? What were they for?
1: Okay. I'm glad you liked that. And I'm glad you liked that chapter for me. You know, um, Fortifications and fortification networks is one of my interests to really understand how they work, whether they work together. Uh, so if if we understood that, if there's a collaboration between different fortifications, we would understand better the choices behind when they're being built or uh, the location that's being chosen. And the other interesting thing, the, in the conversations that I had Uh, when this book was being written was the question, okay, but if you're interested in rural communities, why on earth are you devoting an entire chapter on fortifications? Because still we think about fortifications again as a top-down situation, right? The emperor or Mm. the local elites are giving money, they want this, and this is being built. This is not how fortifications um, are, are, are designed and you need people to both build them, but also to man them. And there are clear indications that the local population, whether trained or not, did have a role to play in the manning of fortifications. And in archaeology, there's a lot of discussion about fortifications as signs of pride for the local community that participates in the making and the defense, but also as ways to differentiate different um, members of the local communities because one of the interesting things that comes up from the archives is that we have people who are living within the uh, fortifications and castles and people who are living outside so you know that creates a boundary because in 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 a scenario of an attack if you're inside and i'm outside chances are i'm gonna lose my life first so there is a a differentiation there uh, that comes with fortifications that i hadn't thought before but reading more Outside the Byzantine world, um, um, colleagues were looking at Maya and Incas, this is where this was coming from. And I thought that was very interesting. The fortifications themselves, with, you can have entire cities that are fortified. Um, and especially on Thassos, there are a couple of very good examples um, of, of the capital city for Thassos, for Limnos Cotinus is the same, that you see a lot of engineering and a lot of thought about how to make this accessible when you want to and inaccessible when you don't. So, there are a lot of bridges and moats and thinking about raising. I mean, Kotzinos is, is an incredible example on Limnos because it was flat originally. And then this becomes an artificial mound in order to place a fortification on top of it. So, that, that is an incredible amount of engineering and knowledge and thinking uh, that went into the design. You also have smaller forts. It's clear that they are for a small garrison and they're overlooking um, the settlements and the land below. You also have a lot of fortifications that either belong to a monastery. And that means that the monastery is responsible for building or they are bequeathed to a monastery. So they're responsible for money and maintaining. And then you also have freestanding towers as well. Many of them. Are built by imperial officials and then are gifted, sometimes through imperial orders, sometimes because they themselves want to give them into a monastery. So, again, you know, this allowed me through the fortifications, I had a, an opportunity to talk about all these different agents who are active on the islands and how they have to work together, whether they agree or disagree, uh, in order to make this work. So that was the one part that I thought was interesting that through the fortification, again, I could talk about the different groups interacting. The other thing was about the fortification network. How do you, do you plan this? Is there a design that you're saying, okay, you know, I'll have, I'll put five fortifications in five different locations so they can communicate with each other. And one thing I was trying to prove in that um, chapter was that these fortifications and the fortification, network is something that is a living organism. You tweak, you change, you recalculate, uh, and you try to correct. So again, um, you can. we have the digital tools in mapping to be able to see if you're standing on the top of one castle, can you see the castle that's uh, near you, or can you see any other fortifications on the island? So that was very telling for me, mapping out this uh, visual... Uh, areas of control and the visual communication between fortifications to see who can see what. Mm. Once I knew that and I knew a little bit more about castles that were pre-existing and they were being repaired or new fortifications that were being built on the island, I was able to follow the logic behind it. And this is where, you know, I thought it was fascinating that they were trying to correct whether they could see. Okay, so if we cannot see each other, I'm gonna put like a little tower in the middle, so it's gonna help us communicate. It's gonna be like the uh, the bridge between us. And in other ways, you know, that was very interesting with Thassos, thinking a little bit about fortification in different ways. There's some fortifications that are more central, so they can see more uh, areas, bigger areas, and others that are very localized. They're there to do very different things. They're there to guard the local community and the local resources. And then again it was on the Thassos that um, you could actually see to the to the other coast, to the Macedonian coast. And that was interesting because it tells us something about islands. We keep thinking about islands as very isolated, right? That they they're there and you know because of the weather they can also be very fragile, very isolated communities. We forget that there it is their island. Now if you like, that allows them also to be amazingly connected within broader networks. And these networks are not just between islands, but it's also between islands and the mainland. So Thassos gives us that um, that picture, especially through fortification, very well.
0: Yeah, this is why you don't need uh, theft insurance for your car on an island.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not going to go anywhere.
0: You, but you can't take it off the island. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, it's only through a boat. Anyway. Um, yeah, I love the maps that you produced with the lines of sight, like what could you see from each fortification?, uh, because it really um gave me insight into the planning of where these things were situated and what they were interested in seeing. Um, and you can, yeah, you have to be there in order to i mean, I'm sure you have technology that helps you to <laughs> visualize that on a map. But, yeah, it was quite fascinating also the the level of skill that's required in Building these fortifications, I never appreciated exactly what was at stake until I tried to repair a wall that was outside my old. <laughs> it was it was literally just like a a foot and a half tall, three layers of very flat rocks that when I bought the house were in perfect order, and over the years and the winters and the snow and the ice, they had kind of fallen apart. I was unable to recreate that. I was unable to put them back. And I was, just, and I look at the photos of what these people produced in the 14th century. And it's just incredible.
1: Well, I, I, I'm glad that you're saying that because I, I think for me, having done this, uh, you know, spending these long summers in these islands and um, looking at the material culture they've left behind, I think one of the things that is easy for us to dismiss about, as I said before, their power, their agency, and the importance of these rural communities is because that we don't have an insight and therefore appreciation of what they do. So, you know, making your own food from scratch all the time, making your own textiles, building your own house, none of us is doing that right now. So because we don't Have that experience, but also the skill and knowledge that go with it. It is very difficult for us to appreciate what it is that we see and the material culture of this community. So if our uh, definition or criteria is, but is it pretty? (laughs) And pretty with, you know, our modern, um, Mm. our modern way of thinking what pretty is, then. And yeah, then um, I guess they're not worth being studied. But if we think about knowledge and skill and value and time, uh, then you have a very different appreciation. So yes, until you try to build your own wall, you cannot appreciate a rural house uh, in the Byzantine world. You just see it and you're like, well, I mean, it's not big and it's not from marble. So it doesn't make the cut. And you know, for me, that is such a big. I feel like this is the big crusade of my career, is to that's and that's why I want to give a voice. Uh, is because I've started appreciating uh, the skill and the knowledge and the effort that goes into, and I want to find ways to convey this both within academia. Since most academics, I don't know, but I feel like many have never milked a cow or made their own um, textiles. So I guess guilty. It's harder to relate. But if, so for me, you know, it's a way of giving a voice and giving the spotlight back to these people and their their important roles um, in how uh, Byzantium was shaped and formed. Uh, And I think, you know, that appreciation of that skill and conveying that also to a wider public, I think it's very compelling and it's worth doing. So, you know, this is, my entire career is all about the study of non-elites. That's
0: what uh, we do. I hear you. Um, that's a great place to start to wrap it up. Um, we're almost out of time, but there's one more thing I wanted to ask you, and that is when you talk about widows. Oh yeah, widows in village communities. Can we talk a little bit about them?
1: Yes, and I'm glad you asked because the last time we were on the podcast together, I told the story of Eleni, one of the uh, who was a widow and a, and um, and a nun, and I got a lot of emails people asking me if Eleni is going to be in the book. So yes, Eleni is in the book. And Eleni is one of these protagonists who is a woman and who is a widow. Um, And we see so many of them. Uh, What is amazing to me, and I will say this again, um, is that they maintain their role as the leaders of their house. uh, And they're registered in official documents and in financial documents as the head of the household, even when they have adult male children, and even when these male children are living with them. So, you know, for me, it's it's so telling of, you know, these women's lives and the opportunities that they get in these roles, because, you know, there, there are a lot of things uh, that they can do. They can remarry. They can be nuns. And of course, they can be nuns and still stay in their home and maintain their own uh, power and property so you know that, that's a very interesting way of mm-hmm. joining a monastery where nothing really changes but no one is forcing you to remarry so that is a very interesting way of um, claiming your independence and your safety right through a religious uh angle but actually it's life so different if you're actually not you know in the convent um
0: you're working from home
1: significant properties as well uh i'm yeah. talking about you know, they come from, you know, we think about rural communities as poor, but there's a lot of differentiation between the property and the social status within rural communities, even when they're all dependent peasants. Even within that, there's so many different categories, and we do see women who, you know, have that status, have that that kind of economic ability, and we know from other studies from, um that a lot of these widows actually become people who sponsor monuments in the villages. And this is based on the works of uh Agiri Kilayu, but also Sarong yourself, who have come out and you know showed some of the proof and some of the activities of these women now as being able to be donors and founders of churches and monastic foundations in their own villages in their own villages. So that that's very exciting. And I seeing these women on Limnos i imagine some of them assuming these kind of roles as well yeah.
0: yes there's some very interesting people there and what i find interesting about their, their the profile as it emerges from the evidence that we have of them is that you wouldn't have been able to predict it if you just went from general principles and how you think the society was structured so based on its gender norms or its laws even or an abstract description of his social structure and yet they're all just behaving in very different ways which in part indicates i think some of these women are pretty formidable characters um, uh, to be able to you know brush all of those constraints aside and and and, and continue to exert um you know their will uh, in in this society there, there are so many obstacles that would have been in their way uh, but also a lot of the kind of entrepreneurial behavior that you describe on the part of other people like they're really taking advantage of every every opportunity that they see and, they have and to. yeah and and this is a period when you know a lot of cracks are appearing in a lot of systems and people you know you know they immediately move into them um so yeah i i understand the fascination with this period and um, and you come at it from a very interesting angle i mean i don't have this data <laughs> <laughs> no, so thank you for, for for making um for making it uh, uh make sense.
1: I'm glad. So I hope that I have I had I have convinced you at least now that you've read the book, uh, that I, you know, these rural communities have power and agency, and even in very challenging uh times, they manage to be very resilient, uh, not only survive, but create new opportunities and shape and reshape and tweak their lives uh, to allow themselves more opportunities and even more roles or new roles, as we said with the example of widows, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I do not believe in the um, elite-driven narratives of either politics or economics. I In no period do I think that economic elites dominated everything in this society, um, you yeah. know, well, that and, us hope. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It, it, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's there is a very, it's uh, a kind of standard narrative, and that you find in every period that uh, you know historians will say, well, in this period, all the elites took over everything, and everybody else was just a dependent farmer. And
1: but no. but the but the question is, why are we so quick to believe that? And I say this because this is something I pose at the end of my book that yeah. why is it that we find it so easy to believe for our past. That you know, uh, non- elites did not play an important role uh, in 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 that period. And what does that say for us today? Does, does that is this you know, a reflection of our own anxiety about how we think we measure in the big events uh, of our lifetime? So you know, I do, I don't see this as something that's limited to the past. I'm very puzzled uh, by this fascination with the leads and this, easy approach of pressing away everybody else. Um, and something that yeah. worries me about, you know, our modern experiences and what, you know, that, that imagination, that imagined past says about, you know, our, our current situation and anxieties for our future.
0: Yeah, boy. I mean, that opens a whole <laughs> other discussion. And I mean, I, I actually think about this a lot because I encountered it in writing the history in Every couple of centuries I was going to I keep finding this claim that, oh, whatever sort of independent peasant you know life there was, but in the century before the one I'm writing in now, that's all gone now because the elites eat everything and then two centuries later you see the same claim and it and it keeps repeating itself that way all the way down to the end of byzantine history and and I always wonder it's like well where where did the independent peasants who were gobbled up by the next round of elite domination come from? If that was already done, or, like it,
1: yeah.
0: And no, so I, I've really struggled with this, and I have a number of explanations for it, but I don't want to get into them right now. But I, I'll mention, I'll mention two that are fairly straightforward. One is there is a strain of, sort of very sort of socially conservative scholarship that thinks that that's how, uh, the way a proper society works is for elites to be in charge that comes from the past but there's another one which is that i think it's a it's a scholarly fear of appearing to be not cynical enough I right. see. It, yeah so yeah oh, i so, don't
1: do cynicism yeah so i don't <laughs> I, I know
0: i know i know you totally don't <laughs> I, I i i like this about you so much but there there are we have colleagues who are afraid of being accused of like, oh, you're being a bit too idealistic here about something, if if you don't paint it in like grim terms. And so they tend to paint things in grim terms because you're less likely to be called out about it than if you say, well, you know, no, actually, you know, these people are resilient and they're taking advantage of opportunities and they have independent properties and so forth. You might be saying, well, she paints a pretty rosy picture of village lot. Anyway. Yeah,
1: I'm up for the challenge, I'm up for the challenge, because this is, because the thing is that, um, you know, I mean, one of the biggest takeaway from this book that resonates with, you know, the experience we're having right now, is that even in the wildest crisis, there's still hope, and there's also opportunity. So, you know, I mean, this is what a resilient framework does. Uh, and I think this is much more productive than saying, well, everything is going from bad to worse. So we're just going to sit here because we're paralyzed from fear. Again, you know, n- talking about Byzantium is never just about Byzantium, right? It's also about us right now and what we're experiencing. Uh, you know, I, I was finishing some of the final um, changes for the book Uh through COVID. So I was very right. cognizant of, of you know, thinking about these people during the Black Death and thinking about, you know, what crisis and resilience meant. It was fascinating to both having these conversations for the 14th century and living through COVID at the same time. Uh, so, you know, these are not things that are just about the past. We study human condition.
0: Absolutely. And maybe we should schedule a another discussion for that. But this is otherwise a great place to end this. Uh, Fotini, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and for doing all that work, you know, on the Greek islands. <laughs> Someone's got to do it, right?
1: Yeah. And you know, it was lovely. It was just lovely. I, you know, I'm so grateful I had that opportunity. I'm so grateful that, you know, this was a time that I still couldn't drive. So I had to walk everywhere. And, you know, I, I just want to say that, you know, this kind of work you cannot do if you don't put your trust to other people. So that taught me a lot about how to let go and really trust. Uh, and it's all about kindness, because if I didn't have the kindness of these local communities, also, as everybody will read on, in the book, my parents also showed up for two years on uh, Thassos to help out. So, you know, it's 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 labor of love for me, but it's it's because of kindness from other people that allowed this book to happen. So I'm very grateful for that.
0: Well said. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you for having me. (laughs)